We're going to be in Romans 6 this morning, so you can head that way. Um, this week, uh, someone shared with me a clip of uh, someone describing the difference between how men and women think. Uh, he said men's brains have a bunch of boxes that never touch each other, and one box for each thing, and women's brains are like balls of wire where everything is connected. And uh, Audrey told me she'd heard something similar with a, a, a food metaphor where men's brains are like waffles and women's are like spaghetti. And I like that metaphor better because, you know, it's food. Uh, anyway, I don't know how true that generalization is, but I do like pointing out the distinction between these two ways of thinking, which actually become two ways of living. I think that the people bringing up these metaphors are probably trying to say that neither one is right or wrong, we're just different. And that may be true to a certain extent, I guess. Uh, but overall, it's clear to me that one of these ways of thinking is actually much better. And sorry, men, it's the one that's associated with women. Because everything actually is connected. It's just true. It's not okay to have a way of thinking that doesn't accord with reality. There is at least one golden thread and one crimson cord that ought to run through all of life and affect and shape and unite all topics and actions and relationships under one theme. God as creator and Christ as redeemer weave all things together so that we cannot separate various parts of our lives and segregate them off from one another. Because we can't segregate any part of our life from our creator and our king. He is Lord over all of it. And we are told in one of our most hopeful passages in scripture that God works all things. How? Together for good. He works them together, meaning they're more like wire than boxes. And this unity under Christ's lordship extends to our minds and how we ought to think. And we'll see that in our text this morning, but what made me think about this was that I realized I was thinking about the Bible with my waffle brain rather than with a spaghetti brain. I wanted to preach a Palm Sunday sermon, but I also wanted to preach from our reading plan. And we're in Romans in our Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan, where our church is reading through the New Testament together. And I was thinking of Romans as something pretty different from the Gospels. Paul's dense theological teaching and the Gospels engaging stories about Jesus's life. I put them in boxes. I thought if I'm doing that, then maybe other people are doing that. But the Bible is not a bunch of boxes that don't touch, is it? It's an interconnected unity of truth under the same Lord over all, inspired by the same Spirit. And the connections are there if you're trying to find them. And if you're looking with open eyes, and we probably ought to make connections that we're not making very regularly. The Christ of Romans is the Christ of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Amen. The salvation that the crowds called for on that triumphal entry and somewhat unknowingly celebrated as they sang for joy when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that salvation that he came to bring at the climax of Holy Week is the salvation talked about in Romans 6. So turn to Romans 6 with me and let's read verses 5 through 14 says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. There's a beautiful and often quoted passage from Psalm 118, 118 that, that many of you know. In fact, we quoted it this morning, read it together. It says, this is the day the Lord has made. Can you say the rest? I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's right. Now, do you know what the very next verse of that psalm is? It was even more familiar and cherished among Jewish people in Jesus' day. And we know that because that next verse is what they all start quoting when Jesus rides his donkey triumphantly into Jerusalem. The very next verse says, save us, we pray. And that cry for salvation is the Hebrew phrase, Hosanna which is what the crowds call after Jesus as they lay down their coats and, and call after Jesus and, and lay down their, their palm branches for his donkey to walk on. They cry, Hosanna, save us. So if you ever wondered what Hosanna means, there you go. It means save us. But it's not just a longing and desperate cry for salvation. It's a confident and hopeful one. And we see that from the very next verse in that psalm, which says what? It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's celebrating the one bringing this salvation. So it's like the, the cheering on of the one who brings that salvation in the name of the Lord. Like cheering on the Savior as he saves. And it's not like this despairing lackluster call of a man stranded on an island for weeks when he starts to become desperate and he cries, somebody save me. It's not like that. It's more like when he actually sees the, the rescue crew headed his way and he waves his arms excitedly and says, help, help, because he knows and sees it coming. That's what Hosanna is. It's less like the teeth gritting, come on, come on, as you cheer on the running back who's bobbing and weaving through a crowd of defenders. And it's more like the confident, yes, you got this, when he breaks away with a wide open field in front of him. Hosanna for these people and for us is a joyful and eager cry for salvation. Salvation! Celebrating the one who brings that salvation. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we celebrate Palm Sunday today, the beginning of Holy Week, we reflect on that day when Jesus came into the capital of his people boldly and blatantly identifying himself as the Messiah the king. That is what he was doing on that donkey. Make no mistake. Everybody knew it. 
He was fulfilling a well-known prophecy about the Messiah from Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus did his part of that prophecy, riding the donkey. And the people did theirs, didn't they? Rejoice greatly and shouted aloud. And they did, as they chose to do that, the text they chose when they did that was that psalm from David, Psalm 118. And they gratefully called for his salvation. And they sang of his salvation that he was coming to bring. And what was that salvation like? What kind of salvation was he bringing? Many of them may have been mistaken about the nature of his salvation, hoping for a political or military savior, which is the only kind of savior some people seem to be able to imagine. People who are so earthly-minded, they're of no heavenly good. But his mode of transportation already tips us off about that, doesn't it? He's coming in peace. He rode into Jerusalem to save the world on a donkey, not on a horse, on a beast of burden, not on a stallion of war in humility and service rather than in pomp and ceremony. And though it was a triumphal entry, as we call it, it was not like the triumphal victory of the Romans after they conquered and killed their enemies. If he had had that kind of victory in mind, we would have seen what what Revelation tells us to expect one day with him riding on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. But not yet. On Palm Sunday, he rode on a donkey. An animal you definitely would not want to ride into battle because he was not coming to kill and conquer. He was coming to die and conquer. The salvation he was coming to bring would involve the death, not of his enemies, but of himself. And that same salvation for us to experience it requires not the death of our enemies, but the death of ourselves. And this is what Romans 6 tells us in verses 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Christ died in order to liberate us, to set us free. We die in order to be set free. Jesus wanted to save his people and set his people free in such a way that no matter who ruled over them in this world, they would still be free. No earthly man could ever touch the freedom that he came to secure for all of his people who name him as their king. Because what really enslaved us is sin. And the self that was under the tyranny of that master has died on the cross with Christ. And now we truly live. And that leads to something so interesting and wonderful. Here in in this passage in the sixth chapter of Romans comes the very first command in this whole book. The first imperative that actually tells you something to do and how to live. Some people think wrongly about the Bible. They think the Bible is just a bunch of rules to follow, but it's not. This proves it, right? It's actually primarily showing you good and beautiful truth 
things to know and believe, a God to know and believe, a salvation to know and believe. And then, of course, there are certain implications of that because reality is more like spaghetti than waffles. And so these truths spill over and connect to everything else. And that's what these commands are. And we see that so clearly in such an unexpected way. Because what is the first command in Romans? What is the first implication for your life after all the glory Paul has just put on the table in Romans so far? He says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. The first command is how you think about yourself. So you see how I said obedience to our king extends to our minds and in how we think about things? Paul knows what he's doing. It's not by accident that this is the first command because this command must be obeyed in order to live a life that is in keeping with the truth of the gospel. And I know that Paul is doing this intentionally because it's kind of a pattern with him. In fact, just a couple uh, months ago, I was listening to a preacher who was talking about the book of Ephesians, and he said, there's no command in Ephesians until chapter four, over halfway through the book. And he's right in spirit, but he's not technically right. He's right that the first half of the book is primarily telling true things, and then he starts applying those true things later in the second half of the book, in chapter four. But he was technically wrong because there is in chapter two a command. It's just not the kind of command we, come, we tend to think of as a command. But that's the beauty of a lot of the commands that arise out of the gospel of Christ. They are wonderful and unexpected and more of a gift than a burden. So what is this command that snuck past this preacher? In chapter 2, verse 11 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His first command is to remember. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember. Again, it's a calling on how we think and what we are to think. Every night, me and my daughter pray that God would help us remember him and his awesomeness. Ellie Holcomb, um, a singer-songwriter, has a children's book that goes along with a song that she wrote, and the kids and I have been listening to it in the car a lot lately uh, the last couple weeks, and it's called Don't Forget to Remember. It's from an album she did called Sing Remembering Songs. And, and it's so good. Here's a couple of the verses. Don't forget to remember. You're never alone, no matter if you are up high or down low. And as sure as the sun will keep rising above, don't forget to remember that you are dearly loved. Let the whole earth remind you of what God has said from the moment you wake up till you go to bed. And even on days you forget what is true. Don't forget to remember. God won't forget you. We are called to remember. And this is a part of what Jesus said when he, his burden was light. What a beautiful command to obey. 
This is how you begin to obey Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls the church that he's writing to to grow in a whole list of virtues such as faith and goodness and love. And he says, if you lack these things, it's because you are so nearsighted, you've become blind. And then he says, why? He says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from former sins. So according to that passage, if you are lacking faith or godliness or love, it's because you're failing to remember You're forgetting the gospel. So remembering in scripture is to hold something in your heart as a factor that shapes your life, how you think and feel and act. And so this this early first command in Ephesians is to remember, to remember who you were, remember who you are in Christ. And we see something similar in our text in Romans, where we see in chapter six, after six chapters of amazing gospel truth, we come finally to a command in chapter 6, and he tells us based on all of this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, that means that you must think about yourself a certain way. You are called to have a gospel-shaped view of your own identity. And you will have a view of your own identity just, you will have one, <laughs> whether it's Christ or not. You will have an idea in your mind, in your heart, in your imagination about how you relate to sin and God and your former life and so on. And, and you will have some picture of who you are in that way, in that sense, whether you're intentional about what that is or not. Whether it's informed by the truth of God's word or your own feelings or the culture around you. Whether you think about it a lot or think about it a little, it will shape your life. And Jesus cares about what this is for you. He says, when you think about Holy Week and Easter, I want you to think about your new identity. And that's not a leap, because let me read you from the, ten, the, the lead up to this command once more. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, Good Friday, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, Easter Sunday. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, Good Friday, we believe that we will also live with him, Easter. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says when he rode into Jerusalem to save the world, he was taking you with him. Our God is above and beyond and unlimited by space and time. And through your faith in Christ here and now, we are united across thousands of years and thousands of miles. And our actual self, which we had given over to the slave master of sin, was killed on the cross with Christ. Dead and buried. And when Christ rose again outside the dominion of death to a new indestructible life, we too were resurrected as new people with him. Alive, truly and deeply alive with him. And I love the way Paul phrases it. 
How does he talk about our life? He says we are alive to God. We generally don't pair alive with that preposition to. We don't think of being alive to things or people. But that's how Paul and Jesus talk about true life. True life is something that can only exist to God. In Christ, we are alive to God, but we are dead to sin. Our relationship to sin is death. Kind of like when people uh, disown family members in the movies and say, you're dead to me. Except and we say to sin, I'm dead to you. I'm dead to you, sin. Because we really are in Christ. He's not telling us to pretend when he tells us to consider ourselves this way. He's telling us to think about ourselves in a way that is in keeping with the truth of the gospel. He's telling us to view ourselves through the true lens of the gospel, to believe in accord with reality and what is really true about your soul. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about your relationship to sin? Now, I'm not saying sin goes away immediately. And, and I'm going to try and make it a little bit more vivid and help you understand how this works with a story. Uh, let's imagine the same kind, of, uh, same kind of thing happened in a slightly different way. This isn't an allegory. This is a parable with a main point uh, of what this practically looks like in our lives. Okay, so don't get too caught up on the details. I'm telling you a parable here. Let's imagine there was a whole kingdom where something strange happened. All the people wanted independence from their king. A good and powerful king. But that didn't matter. He was a king. And so they rebelled and left and started a new society. And this new society still loved laws. They just wanted to make up their own. So they made up their own. And in this kingdom, half the people are slaves for life. And the other half are oppressors. And if any oppressor comes across any slave, he's allowed to act as his owner. And they thought this seemed like a good system at first because, uh, you know, the slaves get taken care of by the benefactors and the oppressors get taken care of by the servants. They thought it would work out. But when actually it started playing out, the oppressors became more, became proud and started treating the slaves harshly and demanded more than they ought. And it went on like this for a long time and became normal. But then the king comes back and he gathers all of those slaves and he goes to the oppressors and he says, we will be slaves no longer. And the oppressors with long hardened hearts say, well, then we've got no use for you. And they kill the king and all of the servants, all the slaves. And then they start to go back to business as usual. But then the king gets back up, alive. And when he gets back up, the whole horde of former slaves gets back up as well. And it turns out this good and powerful king was more powerful than they thought. And this resurrected king, he reclaims his throne and he says, based on his decree and even the oppressor's own laws, these slaves are free. They died. Their servitude is over. And now they are alive again to new lives as free people. Now, here's the point. How do you think that society is going to go? Do you think all those old oppressors are just going to say, you got it, and start treating them as equals? And do you think the former servants are just going to be able to immediately kick all their old habits of submitting these people and thinking that them, of themselves as less than these people as they did for so long? No. Even though they are free, 
When the old oppressors come into contact with them, they will still try to oppress them, even though they have no right to. And often, these former slaves will let them, even though they shouldn't. They will still feel the weight of all those years and entrenched in those old habits. And they won't always live in this new truth. What's it going to take? It's going to take time. It's going to take courage. It's going to take remembering what happened that miraculous day when their king stood by their side and died with them and then brought them back to life as free people. And when their old masters come calling, gradually more and more, they will start to say, no, the king rules me now, not you. And then what will those masters say? They'll say, ah, so you aren't free. You're just a slave to another master. And that's where they have to remember what he has done and who he is and be enthralled with his goodness and know that a good king is a very different thing than a tyrannical slave master. And they think they, they, these people think this way because that's the only way they can think. They don't know what true freedom is. Freedom is not freedom from, it's freedom to. You are free to your new king. Just like life is not life from, it's life to. You are alive to God. The difference is not between serving and not serving. That doesn't exist. As Bob Dylan's saying, you got to serve somebody. But the difference is vast. We turn from little oppressors to a great and glorious king. We forsake small idols for a big and beautiful God. Thursday morning, Pastor Tim shared a prayer with us, uh, the staff from uh, Isaac Ambrose. And I loved it so much. I think it captures this idea beautifully. I want to read it, some of it to you. He, he prays about how we turn, what we turn away from and, and why we turn away from it. And the bigness of the blessings that, from God that push out these lesser things. So he prays this. He says, all other things are vanities, but you, God, are real solid, substantial, excellent, glorious. All other things are temporary, but you are an enduring substance. All other things are thorns and vex our spirits, but you are full of joy and comfort altogether lovely. Must I turn away from my sins? There be before me are the, are the graces of your spirit. Must I turn away from corrupting company? There before me is fellowship with you and your father. Must I turn away from honors and glory? There before me is the privilege of adoption. Must I turn away from worldly riches? There before me are the riches of your grace. Must I turn away from sinful pleasures? There before me is fullness of joy. Must I turn away from my own righteousness? There before me is your perfect righteousness. Oh, who would fill their coffers with pebbles when they might have gold and silver? Lord Jesus, you turned away from heaven for me. How much more should I turn away from earthly things? Oh, may your melting love win my heart to you and wean me off all other things. Amen. We are called to obey. We must do this. Make no mistake, the text says it. 
but it's like saying you must live. You must choose something and someone so much better and live for the better one. Live for better things. And before all of that, this first command is you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That Greek word for consider is legizomai. And it's the same word in one of my favorite commands in Scripture, where Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Legizomai. Consider these things. We must be people who train our minds to think certain ways, to ponder the right things in the right ways, to think deeply and soundly and stretch ourselves in wisdom. I am burdened by how many people in our culture and even Christians are content to not really consider much of anything. We're so impatient, trained by our on-demand society, our seemingly infinite distractions, with multi-billion dollar companies whose source of revenue is dependent on their ability to distract us. And we've become impatient with contemplation, impatient with mystery and complexity and depth. But I long for us to be different. And it starts here with this command. A couple years ago, I preached a series of messages about wisdom as James sees it in his letter Wisdom from above, as he calls it. And I took James' call to pray for wisdom. He calls us to pray for wisdom. And I took that seriously. I was and have been praying for wisdom. And I ask you to join me. I'm praying for wisdom for myself and for our church. That our generous God, as he calls him, would give us wisdom. And he gave me a desire to see our church brimming with wisdom from above that we would be stable and pure rather than double-minded and unstable, that our stability and purity would be a bulwark in this chaotic world, that our wisdom would be a sturdy stone amidst crashing waves, that we would become a forest of sequoia trees. One of my favorite books, or at least a book I return to again and again, is by J.I. Packer about the Puritans. It's called A Quest for Godliness. And he writes about how they saw their lives as a quest and their quest was for godliness. And on this quest, they became, as he says, like redwood trees in, in California. That's the image he uses. The English Puritans were of such a spiritual caliber and maturity and wisdom that compared to the majority of Christians in most eras, they were like redwoods, which are the tallest trees in the world. But sequoias are actually much bigger in volume, so I just kind of like them better. But even though they're not quite as tall. I like the image of the sequoia better too, just, you know, humor me here. Because they have a circumference around the base of their trunk that's almost 100 feet around, some of them. And they have bark that can be nearly two feet thick, able to endure centuries and many hardships, even in some cases being burned. Can we be these kinds of trees in this world? Can we be these kinds of Christians? Packer says that at least the church, Christians in the West and the part of the world that he knows best, we've been formed into dwarfs and deadheads comparatively. But I know what God can do. And I'm praying for wisdom from above. But it doesn't come quickly or easily. 
And in fact, I believe that this school we are starting, Bethel Academy, is the beginning of God answering my prayers and the prayers of those who, of you who have been praying with me. I don't have small desires for our church. I have high hopes for our church that we will be producing mighty men and women of wisdom and deep understanding to whom others come for help and insight and clarity and peace that the people of Bethel would have the wisdom of Bethel, the scriptural Bethel. Worldly wisdom is like Babel, trying to build and climb your way into the heavens just to end up in disaster. But the wisdom from above is like Bethel, where in the Bible, heaven opened up and came down. True wisdom is from above. And I pray that we live up to our name here and that the people of Bethel will be searched out because we have a heavenly wisdom, a warmth and welcome to our wisdom that is inviting and peaceful rather than off-putting and intimidating. I long for us to be wise, a people of deep understanding and humble curiosity and penetrating insight who are undeceivable in our discernment and loving in our thoughtfulness and God-honoring in our prudence, so that we may be sheep in the midst of wolves who are as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, the way Jesus commanded us to be. And for the generations we raise up and invest in to be giant, mighty sequoias of wisdom from above. And this simply can't happen in a culture that's impatient with mysterious truths like those found in Romans 6, with mighty truths like the gospel. This is the very first command in Romans. All the other commands must spring from obedience to this one. So we can't say, oh, I don't really like thinking about how I'm dead. That's weird. I just want something to do. I want a practical religion. Give me something to do. Well, here's something to do. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, reflect on, remember, contemplate, meditate, remind, and preach this to yourself. Make connections and applications of this truth. Fight to believe this truth daily. This is the only way to see saplings mature into mighty sequoias. Considering deep truths like this And that's the first obstacle we face in obedience to this truth, how we are shaped and trained to be distracted, impatient pragmatists. But there's another obstacle too for us here, and that comes with the content that we're called to consider. The first obstacle is seen in the word consider, and the second obstacle is seen in the word yourself. Consider yourself. Now, what's he saying there? The Bible's telling you how to think about yourself. And that's a no-no for modern Western people like us. We define our own selves, thank you very much. You may feel like you're fine with this command right now, but trust me, you love to craft an image of who you say you are. We all do. I'm just not that kind of person. You ever said that? I'm just this kind of person. You ever said that? To take us back to the previous point, you may say, I'm just not a theologically minded person. I'm more of a practical person. Or you may say I'm just a simple man or woman. Or I may think of things like a waffle in boxes. Or I may think of things like spaghetti or a ball of wire. It's just who I am. Or you may adopt some 
various personality tests that basically tells you what you just told it, like a mirror. And then you say, that's who I am. I'm an introvert, so it's cool that I'm antisocial. I'm an extrovert, so it's cool that I get on people's nerves. Or you may say, I'm a bad person, so what's one more bad thing? Or I'm a sinner, so I can't receive the love of God. I don't deserve it. Or you may say, I'm a good person, so the few bad things I do don't matter all that much. I don't really need much religion. I'm a great guy, after all. Or you may say, I've got to be true to myself, and I'm just not in love with my spouse, so I'm going to leave to live my truth. Or you may say, I've got to be true to myself and I feel like I've been assigned the wrong gender. And the question that we are all obsessed with answering is who do you think you are? And the real question we ought to reckon with is who do you think you are? You're not God. You don't define yourself or choose your own identity. That is the path of hubris that leads off a cliff. You receive an identity. And this is doubly true as a Christian. There are things that are true about you in Christ and these truths are objective and real and firm and enduring and you do not get to choose to disregard them. Christ has made you new at great cost and and driven by great love. And this reality must shape all, all that you are. Men, he's not in a box segregated off from everything else. He runs through every wire in that ball of wire. How you perceive yourself, how you perceive your sin, how you perceive your God. There is something true of you now. So you must consider it true of you now. Think and act and live and remember this truth. Through your faith, Christ has united you to himself. Really. Though it is somewhat mysterious, we are united with his past and with his future. He died and we died with him to sin when he died on that cross. And we rose with him to life when he rose from that grave, never to die again. We receive this blessed union as a gift of grace when we believe on Christ. You may receive that union today. Believe on Christ and he will make you his and you will become dead to sin and alive to God in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled before you and your willingness to send your own son to die and your power to unite us with him through our faith. I pray that we would receive, that everyone in this room, the people who haven't would receive that union be united to Jesus forever through faith in him today. I pray that we, through our faith, and would recognize what's true of us now, that we would consider it true of us, that we would live like it's true of us, that we have been brought from death to life in Christ, that our old self has been crucified and our new self has raised with him. Father, make us consider this and what it means for how we live. 
and let it fill us with gratitude and hope and joy and peace in believing. And we pray with Jesus. Amen.